we have come to the end of three months working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, which is the collection of Jesus' most famous teachings, or the most famous collection of Jesus' teachings, in which Jesus offers the most comprehensive uh, vision of the blessed life in just 2,000 words. Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount's just under 2,000 words, and we've managed to make three months of it. But in just 2,000 words, Jesus paints this comprehensive picture of the blessed life, a life that participates in the mind of the Maker, and so finds our purpose as human beings. And I've said all the way through the series that we mustn't read the Sermon on the Mount as a list of morals. This vision is not do's and don'ts. This vision is actually a description of the very mind and heart of God. Mercy, meekness, peacemaking, love of enemies, turning the other cheek, all of these things reflect God's own character. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about, calling on us to participate in the mind of God. But before we get to these closing two paragraphs of the Sermon on the Mount, I want to wind back to something I said right at the beginning about the connection between the word blessing, the key word of the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount, and the word wisdom, the key word of the closing lines of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the uh, importance of seeing blessing and wisdom together will be especially clear, I think, uh, tonight. Blessing stands like a heading over the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's not just the first word of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.3. It's actually the first word of the first eight sentences of the Sermon on the Mount. You can see back there in chapter 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, and on and on it goes. The biblical concept of blessing is crucial to understand and very often misunderstood. It can't be reduced to mere modern happiness, but nor can it be divorced from the idea of happiness. Apart from anything else, modern psychology, particularly the positive psychology movement that Martin Seligman has led for the last 40 years, has d studied what makes human beings genuinely um, content, happy in the larger sense. And they have come to the very interesting and I think biblical conclusion that the people who are happiest in our society are not those with lots of pleasure or lots of flow where things go well in life, the people who score highest in psychological studies of contentment and well-being are those with stacks of meaning, who feel that their life somehow is connected to a grand purpose. Now, that's a fascinating secular psychological conclusion, but the Bible's been saying that for centuries. In fact, uh, the earliest sections of the Bible, what we call the wisdom literature, Psalms, uh, Proverbs, Song of Songs, Job, the wisdom literature, have been saying the same thing for centuries before Christ. God's wisdom, the Bible says, is His genius, His brilliance. And that genius, that wisdom is built into the structure of physical reality itself and it's expressed in His commandments for how to live 
in the world. So that when you embrace God's wisdom, you're actually participating in the very mind of God, participating in the very purpose of creation in your own life purpose. Uh, You may remember, though I can't expect you to remember three months ago, a sermon, but uh, we reflected for some time on Proverbs 8. I won't reflect in detail on it, only that I've put in yellow the really interesting combination of how wisdom is on the one hand God's commands for ethical life, and on the other, wisdom is the very structure of the universe. So wisdom itself is personified in Proverbs 8, and it says, I was there when the Lord set the heavens in place, when He marked out uh, the horizon on the face of the deep. So wisdom is actually how the universe is structured, but it then goes on to say, then I was constantly at His side at the creation of the world. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Suddenly it's about how you live in God's world. Uh, Do you see the point? Wisdom, God's genius, is in creation. And it's also expressed in His commands for how we live in creation. And to illustrate this, I asked us to imagine the Leotorp cabinet system from Ikea, apparently the most complex of all of Ikea's products. The thing about the Ikea product is that the brilliance or genius of Ikea is in the physical product itself and in the instructions that come with it. It all comes from the same mind, if you like, that has created the mighty Leotorp and then given you some instructions. And I made the point months ago that you can choose, when you look at the instructions, to do what, you know, lots of people do, especially boys. Uh, they look at instructions and go, ah, oh, you know, I don't need this. I can go for my, you know, I can do it myself. Now, you can choose, you know, as a shortcut to jump over sections, I don't know, instructions 10 to 17. Okay. You can decide, because you want to express your individuality, to leave aside the screw at step 50 and the bolt at step 79. Fine, knock yourself out. But you'll soon find out that you're not doing yourself any favours. Because there's only one way to enjoy the thing. And that is to participate in the mind of the manufacturer by obeying the manufacturer's instructions. The manufacturer's instructions aren't boring rules to make your life bad. They are the very genius of the Creator, expressed so that you might engage in the purpose of the thing. Now, of course, the the point with God's commands is when you obey God's commands, you are sharing in God's wisdom the very wisdom that created the heavens and the earth, the very wisdom that calls on you as a human being to live God's way in this world. And so we are blessed when we obey God. Not in the trivial sense that we get a prize for being really good, but in the profound sense that when we obey God, we are participating in the mind of the Creator, the manufacturer's instructions. So, When Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount with blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, and so on, these are not arbitrary statements about behavior God happens to like in human beings. They are actually statements of fact about what it means to live as a creature 
in God's creation. You want to live according to reality? You listen and obey God's Word. And as Jesus brings this whole vision of the blessed life to a close, He begs us to embrace wisdom and avoid hypocrisy. Wisdom hears the Word of God and seeks to obey it. Hypocrisy hears the Word of God, may even approve of the Word of God, and then neglects it. So I really have just two things to say tonight, sort of, a little addendum at the end. The danger of hypocrisy and the safety of wisdom. Let me take them in turn. The danger of hypocrisy. Can you glance down again at um, Matthew 7, uh, 21? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The expression that day refers to the day of judgment. The day when God's kingdom comes and realigns everything to God's wisdom, to God's purposes. Just about everyone in the world has longed for God's kingdom without even knowing it. If you have ever wished the Almighty would do something about the evil and injustice in the world, you have wished for God's kingdom. Because God's kingdom that will break in on the day of judgment is a righting of all wrongs. It's a fixing of everything. It is a bringing of all reality into conformity, full conformity to God's own mind and heart. And in a sense, the Sermon on the Mount describes all the things that will survive the judgment day and thrive on into the kingdom of God because all those things are the mind of God that shaped all of reality and will determine your eternity. And Jesus is saying here, there's one thing you can be sure will not survive that day. Hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy. People who name Jesus as Lord, verse 21, Lord, Lord. Correct confession. Probably good theology. And they even work in the cause of Jesus, verse 22. We prophesied in your name. I said last week that prophesying in Jesus' name has nothing to do with predicting the future. It is just the word for preaching, for speaking out in Jesus' name. So these are people in ministry even, perhaps. Yikes. People who can confess the right theology and even work for Jesus, but have not embraced the will of the Father, Jesus says, will hear those terrible words in verse 23. I never knew you. Living out the Father's will, which is the Sermon on the Mount, 
doesn't turn us into Christians. Do you hear that? Living out the Father's will does not turn you into a Christian, but it sure tells us who the Christians are. It's like that image Jesus used from last week, if you were here, in the previous paragraph, where he talks about fruit. By their fruit, you will know them. The figs on a fig tree aren't what make it a fig tree. Figs are the fruit. They, they don't turn it into a fig tree. But the figs sure tell you what kind of tree it is. That, that's Jesus' point. And that's Jesus' logic here. Anyone who has truly embraced God's love will be animated by love in the way they treat others. Not perfectly, not perfectly, but deliberately, directionally, intentionally, they will bear the fruit of love. But the hypocrite, Jesus says, that's the person who hears Jesus' words, who even approves of Jesus' words, but bears no fruit. Gandhi, the great Indian leader, said something very interesting about all this. He was a devout Hindu, of course, with his own ethical tradition in the Bhagavad Gita. But he, as many of you who know about Gandhi know, was a huge fan of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and would talk about it all the time. And on one occasion, he said to the British Viceroy in India, Lord Irwin, these words. When your country and mine shall get together on the teachings laid down by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, we shall have solved the problems not only of our countries, but those of the whole world. High praise, right? The thing is, Gandhi said that the British Christians he saw in India, who ruled India, didn't look anything like the Sermon on the Mount. And he would quote the Sermon on, on the Mount at people. Christ I like, he would say. It's his friends I have a problem with. Actually, my colleague, Dr. Dr. Justine Toe, was in India just recently, shooting scenes uh, on Gandhi and some of the char charitable work that Gandhi looked up to. And she reflected on just this point. It stings. And I often think when the world, like Gandhi or someone else, exposes the hypocrisy in the church, we shouldn't panic, we should thank them. Because I, I know the world sometimes thinks it's invented the tradition of exposing hypocrisy. You know, like maybe a couple of hundred years ago in the Enlightenment, they invented the whole thing of exposing religious hypocrisy, but they're not. They, that's not what it is. It's just continuating, uh, continuing the tradition of Jesus in exposing hypocrisy. It ought to sting. And boy, oh boy, Jesus' words sting. Hypocrisy will not survive the day. One thing will. Wisdom. My second point, the safety 
of wisdom. Verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fail or fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus is still talking about that day from back in verse 22. As much as I'd love to make this more pastorally sensitive and say that this is the storms of life and Jesus' teachings can help you through the storms of life, which I believe, but I don't think it's what Jesus is saying. It's not what he's saying here. He's still talking about the day of judgment as a storm, which is actually quite a common image of the judgment of God throughout the Bible, going right back to Exodus chapter 9 in the great storm that fell on Egypt. But look what he says. The wise person the one who has wisdom, verse 24, builds their life on the rock of Jesus' teachings. True wisdom. And so that person flourishes. But verse 26 says, the foolish person, which by the way, I think is still the hypocrite. The fool here is the religious hypocrite from the previous paragraph. That person builds their life on sand on something other than Jesus, and it falls with a great crash, verse 27. What is the difference between the fool and the wise person? Actually, the difference isn't the effort put into the building. It's what the building is set on that makes the difference. This is crucial to look at verse 25. The wise person's house survives. Why? Because it had its foundation on the rock. That rock, of course, is God's wisdom, Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Those who set their life on wisdom are safe. Those who don't aren't. Which makes perfect sense. If God's wisdom is His genius built into the creation and expressed in His instructions, what could be more logical to say that when God brings everything into conformity to His will, only that which conforms to wisdom will survive? Eternal life isn't a crass reward for being good. It is the fulfillment of a life that participates in the mind of the maker, in the heart of the creator. And so it is the truly blessed life, both now and ultimately in the kingdom come. Those whose lives are premised on wisdom, survive and thrive into eternity. I was going to end there.
Sometimes I feel maybe I shouldn't let you in on these little sermon things that go around in my head. But at about 2 p.m. on Monday, when I, I had finished my sermon, basically up to that point, I thought, I'm done. I'll just do an idiot check. You know, you know like when you stay at a holiday house, you, you send someone in to do the idiot check, make sure you haven't left anything behind, right, in the house. Well, I do an idiot check always when I write my sermon. I, do, I, look, I look a little bit forward in the passage I've preached on, a little bit back, make sure I haven't missed anything really blindingly obvious. Well, at 2 p.m. on Monday, I had. I noticed how Matthew connects the Sermon on the Mount to the rest of the Gospel. And I think he would be really annoyed with me if I ended where I was thinking of ending. So Matthew's in my ear going, don't you dare end there, John. Point out what I said next. So I don't actually think St. Matthew talks to me. But, but anyway. We're first told how the crowd responded to the Sermon on the Mount there in verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. I find that fascinating because the teachers of the law certainly did have authority. But by comparison to Jesus, it seemed like they didn't. And, and in some ways, that is a good human response. How else would you respond to the one who is more than teacher, who actually embodies the power and wisdom of God? You would respond with amazement. But that's actually not what I noticed. I don't think the human response is the important thing here. The important thing is where Matthew takes us next. Will you forget, please, the chapter heading there uh, in, 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 in chapter 8-1 and the, and the ever-helpful NIV subheading, narrative subheading? Forget that. You, you remember, Matthew didn't write that. He didn't stop and go, oh, I better write chapter 8-1 now, right? And he certainly didn't give himself any narrative headings. You've got to forget that and notice how Matthew connects the Sermon on the Mount with the rest of what follows. 8.1, when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we were told that large crowds gathered with him up the mountain, and now they're all following after him down the mountain. And this is a narrative clue that we don't stay up with the Sermon on the Mount, we follow Jesus. And I want you to notice that the first thing that happens in this transition point between the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of Jesus' ministry is that Jesus extends grace to two outsiders who are unworthy of Jesus' love. Two outsiders who, in a sense, embody the opening line of the Sermon on the Mount. What's the opening line of the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who look into their soul, their spirit, and know that they have nothing before God. They're out of credit. Now, here's the thing. No sooner does the Sermon on the Mount finish and Matthew take us down the mountain into the crowds that he introduces us to two outsiders, two unclean outcasts, who admit they are poor in spirit and receive the grace of Christ. Will you please notice this? And, and, and this is how I'll end. The first is a leper, a man who lives on the edges of ancient Judaism. And he comes with such humility in verse 2. A man with leprosy came out of the crowd, maybe he'd been listening to the Sermon on the Mount, and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. 
very significant because it was religiously illegal to touch a leper. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Grace to an outsider. No sooner has Jesus shown grace to a Jewish outsider, look at the very next story. He shows grace to a pagan Roman outsider who likewise expresses such poverty of spirit. Verse 5, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Let's stop here, right? Centurion, okay? He, He is a commander of the occupying forces. He worships foreign gods. He lives a life that's a million miles from the Sermon on the Mount. But look what happens. Verse 6, Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and the servant will be healed. Jesus does heal and declares that this man, a Roman centurion, will enjoy the future kingdom. Look at verse 10. Truly I tell you, Jesus says to the crowds, still following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is the proper conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. No matter how strongly Jesus has warned against hypocrisy, the very first word of the kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, still stands like a banner, not only over the Sermon on the the Mount, but over the entire story of Jesus. The grace of Jesus Christ is available to anyone who admits that their inner self before God, their spirit is out of credit, undeserving. Whether we're talking about a Jewish outcast leper or a pagan Roman soldier, the poor in spirit are given the kingdom of heaven. As the story of Matthew unfolds, of course, we follow Jesus to the cross and to the empty tomb. And there we discover how it is that the unworthy can belong to the kingdom. How is it? The only person to have ever perfectly lived the Sermon on the Mount in the end, gives his life, perfect life, on the cross for you and me. So that despite all of our imperfections, our poverty of spirit, our lack of credit, the judgment falls on Jesus in that moment so that we, by God's love, are forgiven. So here's the thing, 
the love and grace Jesus calls for in the Sermon on the Mount is nothing other than the mind of, and heart of God himself. Because in Jesus, we see the love of enemy, self-giving for the sake of others. We enter the kingdom as a gift of divine love. But if you have tasted the divine love, you will love. If you have tasted the divine love, you will love. That is the blessed life. Now and on forever into the kingdom. Lord, will you please speak to us wherever we find ourselves. Lord, please help us to know and experience your love and grace so that we might, Lord, be animated by love toward other people. Not perfectly, but intentionally, deliberately, in the power of your Spirit, that we might bear fruit, the fruit of the Sermon on the Mount, the life of wisdom, the blessed life. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our teacher, our Savior, our Lord. Amen.